the sad thing is that despite huge advances in agriculture productivity globally and you know this is right from uh, the 1940s 1950s um, um you know even today more than around 2 billion people globally do not get essential vitamins and minerals in their food Hello and welcome to another episode of the Impact Ambassador podcast. I'm your host Mohit Mishra. Today I'm joined by an inspiring guest whom I first got to know via a case research on layaway financing scheme for farmers in Tanzania that she worked on. She holds a master's in international development policy at Georgetown University and is a consultant in the area of financial inclusion. Previously, she worked as a senior program manager for financial inclusion at the Mastercard Foundation in Toronto, Canada, managing their agriculture finance portfolio. She's a multilateral and policy advisor at Harvest Plus that facilitates the global effort to end hidden hunger caused by a lack of essential vitamins and minerals in the diet. It's time to welcome our guest for today's episode, Reva Mishra. Reva, I'm very glad to have you on the show. Welcome. Thanks so much, Mohit. Uh, it's uh, nice to have a chance to to talk to you about some mutual interests. Lovely. I'm really looking forward to this show. I'm uh, really looking forward to also learning because you have a quite an interesting background. Uh, Reva, you have a background in impact-driven policy making and research in development economics you have worked on projects surrounding financial inclusion especially in the agriculture sector you worked with care india mastercard foundation harvest plus could you tell us a little bit about your journey and why you actually chose this path um so that's that's an interesting question to reflect on so i would say that my journey has been um uh, a fair amount of it has been spent working on issues of um, rural development particularly rural finance so whether it was in india with care or in early stages as a research assistant in the un or reserve bank and then uh, or if it was in canada to teach or to work with mastercard foundation and now with harvest plus and if we have mostly always focused on rural finance rural development and i think for me the north star in this journey is sort of the typical rural household and and their resilience i feel like uh somehow whether or not countries take uh, a strong road to development is very much mm-hmm. tied to whether or not rural families progress and are they able to grow their businesses uh, are they able to send their kids both girls and boys to school are they able to afford nutritious food um health uh, care so for me um what compels me in my journey is some of the exciting development innovations that um uh, are able to solve these everyday issues for smallholder families uh in a very practical and customer oriented way uh and that means starting right from the beginning with a very clear sense of the opportunities and challenges facing these families and and therefore i have often taken a, a path uh of uh, engaging more on applied research um which offers me an opportunity to engage very directly on on understanding opportunities and challenges 
That's a very inspiring river. So when you talk about, uh, so I, I can imagine that these are pretty much, very much ground level root impact that you are, uh, uh, that you are working on uh, because you're talking about rural families. And I can imagine in, in countries like India, where most of the population live in the rural areas, whatever research you do is very much impactful by the size of it. Could you talk a little bit more on what these farmers typically face challenges in all your research that you have done? Yeah, sure, uh, happy to. So uh, actually one thing that has struck me is that at least at the farmer level, Mm -hmm. Many of the challenges seem consistent, regardless of whether the farmer is in India or somewhere in Ghana or in uh, some other sort of part of the world, uh, developing world. So, you know, unlike uh, you and me, many of them are not in uh, uh, salary-based jobs. They kind of get their money once or twice right. a year when they sell their harvest. Um, right. And so their life is very much about smoothing that money across the year to meet needs. Uh, and it's very, very difficult to do that, actually. You know, most people aren't great savers. Um, uh, I know I'm not. <laughs> so, you know, from, yeah. from the perspective of a farmer, they're being hit with um, a, a lot of cash at one time in the year and then another time maybe during a lean season is in fact when they uh, may have to also pay school fee they're not only kind of dealing with the need to feed families every day but they're also dealing with school fee maybe um, you know uh, it's a hungry season so immunities are low they're also dealing with higher healthcare costs so all, all right. troubles come together. And this is pretty much the story in, in many countries. I would say where it shifts a little bit is um, what the experience has been is like if you travel from India to Bangladesh or mm -hmm. to sub-Saharan Africa, you'll find that some countries have done better than others in systematically growing rural banking infrastructure. I would say like, for example, in parts of India, increasingly in other parts of South Asia, rural banks have expanded quite effectively. There's been a lot of investment in agriculture, technologies, improved seeds and inputs, you know, investments in the right kind of uh, studies, so, you know, building that cadre of PhDs, uh, getting specialized research centers in place, quality control. Right. You know, all that stuff that at the end of the day matters is slightly better in some parts of the, the world than others. Uh, but the story, again, you know, if you travel into Chhattisgarh, for example, or you travel into some remote parts of uh, India, mm -hmm. uh, or if you go into certain, uh, uh, you know, less developed countries in sub-Saharan Africa, the story again uh, kind of switches dramatically. It starts to feel like that infrastructure and science has not reached these areas effectively, or it has, but quality is compromised uh, or there are systemic leakages. So there's, there's, there is that uh, scenario as well. So I would say at the individual farmers level, a lot of commonality across the globe. Uh, and, and then when one steps back and looks at the development scenario, 
um, there's still uh, a lot to learn. Right, I can imagine that. For these farmers, I can imagine they are, they, they may have like large number of hectares of lands, or they could also have small hectares of lands, which m perhaps makes it a lot more challenging for them to actually have a good harvest. So what are the typical challenges in the life of a farmer that you have seen on field or have researched about and you have worked with so many case research works? What are the typical challenges that probably these small holding farmers have? Yeah, so, you know, at a broad level, <clears throat> aside from this issue of uneven cash flows, um, and if we go to the, the root of that, one of the issues is, um, you know, access to high quality inputs. So if you don't have very productive seed or uh, you don't, aren't not able to afford the right quality of inputs at the time that you really need to sort of make the right investments, then that means essentially your earnings for the year are at risk. So right. the very first, um, a problem that I've often encountered with smallholders is you open a bag of seed and half of it is rotting, half of it is, is healthy, or it's been contaminated, or there is an issue of... Um, uh, so is there know, an issue, something like uh, where that they, they don't get access to good seeds? Or do exactly. they get access to seeds, but eventually maybe it's quite late into the season to, to, uh, to plug them? Right, that both of those issues. So they, uh, it's an affordability issue and it's also an issue of um, timeliness as you're saying, and it's also an issue of quality. Quality is a big, big problem. Um, okay. And then a second uh, area is knowledge. Um, you know, farming techniques have, um, have potential to generate significant returns. So if you're improving the way you right. plant, yeah. Um, or if you're improving how you prepare your soil or how much or how little fertilizer you use, all of that can make a big change in the amount of yield you get from your crop. So that also matters. The third is, um, you know, other sort of external issues. So uh, one big one is climate uh, related variation, uh, vulnerability to pests and diseases. Uh, all of these uh, really matter, especially if you're a smallholder, because you're kind of, you know, if you think about it, you're on the edge anyway. So yes. any shock yeah. can push you over. And that's really where, um, you know, it becomes important to, to take sort of a full view of what they're going through. The other aspect is even if you do get a good harvest, supposing you do all the right things and you get a good harvest, what happens when it comes to marketing? So do you really have access to the right um, market information? Do you know where you'll get the highest prices? Are you able to transport your crop uh, at the right mm. time? Or if you want to wait and you want to store your crop and sell when prices are higher, do you have access to storage infrastructure? So all of that stuff matters. And, you know, there has been a lot of effort in many countries to solve these problems. These are not problems that I have uniquely identified. I think a lot of countries have identified. The problem is 
finding effective solutions for some of these problems. And then finally, of course, you know, financial services play a huge role in all of these, right? The question of affordability right. yeah. and timeliness that you brought up earlier, mm -hmm. uh, the issue around managing risks when uh, you're hit with, uh, you know, drought or excess rain or uh, any of those, uh, those things, or when you need uh, just a little sum to tide you over uh, during the lean season. Uh, right. You know, all, of, all of those kinds of services, um, you know, folks like you and I can kind of take that for granted, but less so when it, when it comes to smallholder farmers. That, those are really good points, Reva, really um, very much uh, enlightening. And I can imagine that when we talk about the challenges of these farmers, two, two typical, let's say, principle that comes to my mind that is really impacting them as a result of all the challenges they face, that there's a lack of predictability about their own cash flow, because as you rightly talked about, that the climate change has an impact on their yield. Drought may have a dramatic impact on their yield. A lot of, if the seeds are not planted on, at the right time, it may impact their yield. If they don't get a right access to the market, it will impact their cash flow. And the other part is that it's very, it, it's very irregular, right? There, the income is, can be unpredictable and irregular. So these financial services that you briefly talked about, how do these financial services help them? Any case research? I know one case research you worked on, uh, especially in Tanzania that I came across and you worked on multiple such case uh, research. What are the solutions that are there in the market that can really help these farmers? There is of course credit-based, but you rightly brought up some important issues that, uh, that their savings, um, uh, the do they have crop insurance or not in order to protect them from shock? What are the financial solutions out there in the market that are really helping them? Yeah, thanks, thanks for that question. Yeah, so, you know, just to, just to emphasize, um, many of the cases that I've, I've looked into are not necessarily successes. Um, mm -hmm. Some of them are failures. In fact, there's a lot more that's failed when it comes to agriculture finance than has succeeded. The reason is mm, okay. it's incredibly difficult to line up uh, and address all the issues that might be at a market level or at the level of a farmer's behavior really ensure the success of a product. So what I think I, I like doing very often is not only learning from success, but also failure. Um, yes. So yes. I think, uh, and, and again, I don't want to call it failure as much as I want to call it as you are developing products uh, and services, you know, it's interesting to, to see what, what, what might work, what might not initially. So you typically learn work. along the experiment <laughs> as you exactly. execute them. Exactly. And so um, in a lot of these cases, and then I think, uh, you know, I probably missed a really important service. Um, mm -hmm. And one of the cases that I can, I can mention, so I've done some, some uh, studies with uh, uh, an organized, excellent organization called Alliance for a Green Revolution in Africa, AGRA. Mm -hmm. And uh, these cases recorded in, in a few different countries, 
lessons from, from different innovations in financial services. Uh, I've also done a lot of case, uh, case research on financial access in remote rural areas. This was, uh, again, a global, global study uh, done with Ford Foundation and the Cody Institute. So there's been a lot of work. Uh, I'm not the only one who does this, this area, uh, this kind of work. But one of the interesting things that I've also increasingly recognized is outside of, of um, you know, the core savings credit insurance, mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the critical services is also just plain payments. So if you can pay a farmer on time for delivering their crop, uh, or if you can pay seed farmers on time for delivering seeds, if you're a seed company, or if you can pay, uh, you know, uh, a, a farmer uh, in a, any kind of a supplier in a value chain on time, that in itself is a huge uh, cost saving for a farmer. Because think about it, if you as a supplier got paid on time, um, you know, you can immediately take that money and invest it in your next business cycle. But if you right. don't get paid on time, then you not only have to either borrow money, which is going to be a cost for you, or you're going to have to forego that future income, which is an even bigger cost. So the factor so, of time can um, really play a significant role in the farmer's life. Right. So one case study that I've done uh, in this context is about uh, trying to uh, cost out, um, you know, this, this exact savings if you do uh, something mm -hmm. as simple as digital value chain payments. And this was in Ghana. I was mm -hmm. looking at the rice subsector. Um, and uh, the, the case study is called Digitizing Value Chain Payments. It's a digital solution uh, from Ghana. Another uh, piece of work that I did was focusing on um, digital layaways. Um, and this was the, the piece that you mentioned about Tanzania. And again, yes. what's really interesting for me in the agriculture finance space is that it, it shouldn't always be about credit. There are solutions out there which um, can address the needs of farmers by uh, you know, uh, offering a full uh, portfolio of services or offering complementary services to credit like savings and insurance. Because again, you know, I keep bringing it back to people like yourself and myself, we need it all. We need that savings account. Yes. We need a, a debit card to be able to pay people and so on and buy our coffee or what have you. We need our, um, we need credit. Uh, we need also insurance, you know, sometimes you need health insurance or you need anything for that eventual, eventuality that you may not have anticipated. So similarly for farmers, right. they need all of that full portfolio of services. Um, and so for me, savings or uh, layaways uh, is a kind of model that is growing in certain parts of Africa where, and there's a lot of exciting innovation um, you know, happening in many countries um, in West Africa as also in Tanzania, where mm -hmm. what you have is um, farmers are encouraged instead of taking credit um, just at the time that they're supposed to buy seed and fertilizer, 
they're encouraged to start saving small amounts of money upfront, just like you might say pay installments for a car. Um, right, some sort of like so, an EMI that you would like pay. EMI. Exactly. And if you can digitize it or make it exciting for the farmer to do that, then it can actually be a great way to build savings discipline. So you might see a farmer start to save more than they strictly need for inputs as well. And that so savings might also impact their credit worthiness, I imagine. It would def and I think that's kind of another aspect of it, which is that, you know, if you are able to get a farmer to build this discipline of putting aside small lump sums of cash, and mm -hmm. I'll, you know, later talk about a book which has really influenced uh, thinking in the financial services industry around this. But if you're able to get them to start to put aside small lump sums of cash, that tells you something about their ability to repay uh, a loan. Right. So, um, so certainly yeah, from a credit uh, assessment perspective, uh, it's very interesting to observe these kinds of, these, these kinds of things. And usually in your case research, uh, what were your learnings? Like, for example, to save certain amount, they need to have some sort of income. So probably it might be happening, correct me if I'm wrong, that when they actually have a harvest that they have sold in the market, they, they will receive some sort of income. And then you want to build out a layaway scheme so that they can potentially buy seeds in the next season. Is that something how the, the layaway scheme works that you were talking about? I think the one thing that I have learned when it comes to sort of these kinds of saving services mm -hmm. is the importance of flexibility, importance of flexibility. Hmm. Because there's a lot of um, variability in, in the livelihoods of rural households. So they may have one or two big crops uh, and then to survive, they might keep some chickens, they may have a, a couple of cows, they might sell milk. Um, so, you know, you may, or they might engage in seasonal migrant labor. So they'll have a big lump sum, as you're saying, just after harvest, and they may be able to put aside a slightly bigger installment for the next season's inputs. But then they might also be able to contribute very small amounts of money throughout. And if mm. you can kind of pinpoint the, the right amount of money that they can contribute, maybe it's, um, you know, I'm just taking a thumb rule, maybe it's, uh, if you say $1.25 a day is, is kind of roughly how much a low-income person needs to survive every day, maybe um, they are able to save 10% of that or 20% of that on a daily basis. They don't feel it quite as much. Um, but over time, it, it, uh, it kind of builds nicely. So there's, there's the, the main thing there is to allow them the flexibility to save as much as they can when they can. Right, that's a very important point that you brought up because usually on, like people for us, we may not understand how the economics work uh, for them because we are usually used to our own banking solutions. Okay, we just save it the way we want. Probably we have a credit card that we use, but that's a very important point that you have brought up about the flexibility that they usually require. And for these farmers, you, you brought up that, okay, there might be some uneventuality. There could be a climb, uh, there could be a drought, there could be a low yield that 
definitely impacts their income and therefore their own savings. So there is a need for risk, for covering their risks, or securing their future. Mm-hmm. So that kind of like insurance that can help them also further to invest, to grow their own farm business along the way. What are these solutions we that probably we may be having in the market? I'm just curious about to learn about these solutions if there exist. Yeah, there's there's a lot of work happening in in insurance mm-hmm. um, for farmers, and the government itself, particularly in India, um, has been offering different kinds of schemes. I think the um, uh, you know, some of the interesting things that have cropped up is um, using satellite data to better predict um, the very local variations in, in weather right. um, or using um, indices or uh, really focusing the insurance product on the most risky time of uh, the crop cycle, which is you know, just as the seed is in its planting germination stage. So that makes the insurance more affordable. So there are many uh, innovations happening all over the world. And there's a a paper that I uh, brought out um, with uh, a a very good group in Georgetown University uh, called Guide that Mm -hmm. captures some of these recent uh, innovations in insurance, specifically in sure tech. Mm -hmm. Uh, So uh, happy to share links, et cetera. The other- Lovely, that uh, would be lovely, really. uh, Yeah, but I think one of the main learnings for me in this process has been that uh, for farmers to really, farmers don't love insurance products. So, you know, it's relatively easy to get them to borrow and open a savings account, but they Mm. don't trust insurance as a product typically. Any specific uh, because, uh, any specific uh, reason why they don't trust insurance products? Because firstly, you know, if someone was to come to me and say, "Give me your money," and I'll pay you <laughs> a certain that amount of true, money yes. when when you're really sick or when your crop fails, um, I'd really want to know that they're reliable. Secondly, um, you know. Even reliable sources sometimes don't pay. That payout never happens because, you know, the farmer believes that uh, something happened to the weather, um, but that company's system did not pick up on it. It's called, uh, you know, there could be dubious claims. Well, yeah, they might think they're dubious claims, but sometimes it's just an error in in the system not having enough sensitivity to pick up what's actually happening Ah. at the ground level. And these kinds of issues crop up a lot in insurance, certain kinds of insurance models, um, you know, this is called basis risk. And there's examples of it, not just in the case of weather insurance, but also more generic crop insurance uh, products. So always there are these problems and there's an experience, long experience of farmers not getting payouts or getting payouts in a very delayed way. You know, all of that affects their interest in investing in insurance again, you know. So um, I know like uh, talking to farmers in Haryana, Punjab, relatively affluent farmers, Mm -hmm. they have very little faith in in insurance services for for various reasons. Uh, So, yeah. 
yeah that that's uh that's that's kind of like sad story personally because obviously we as individuals let's say from the middle class or upper classes we always have some sort of insurance we kind of trust that but but i but as you rightly mentioned there are of course challenges and problems in the lives of farmers and they yes uh, the in the under the conditions that you mentioned the trust factor would be pretty low yeah and so but what's the good part about that story is i think there are some new uh, innovations which are now starting to address these kinds of issues so there's definitely mm-hmm. uh, yeah. progress happening lovely i hope that there's a lot of progress happening for our fellow farmers because of course they are the bedrock of the entire agriculture sector if these same farmers are growing crops and they face so many challenges at the end of the entire chain even we are impacted in the sense that if they don't have the necessary resources and the timeliness of inputs being available uh, the crops that they grow may not be may not have a good yield may lack some important some vital nutrients in them and that's something also that you have been working around uh, what i've learned is called hidden hunger could you tell us a little bit more about this yeah sure so um you know the sad thing is that despite huge advances in agriculture productivity globally and you know this is right from uh the 1940s 1950s um um you know even today more than around 2 billion people globally do not get essential vitamins and minerals in their food um, and these minerals very often are... um so for example iron zinc uh vitamin a the lack of vitamin a i've heard that is also cause of night blindness absolutely night blindness uh and then with zinc and iron and vitamin a, and, and they also work together it's about immunity it's about cognitive mm. development it's about uh ensuring that your your child um is is growing normally uh, both at a physical and mental level right. and uh, uh and it's also about uh increased morbidity and and mortality so like for example iron deficiency among women uh can sometimes increase um the risk of death during childbirth there is uh good um uh, evidence to suggest that uh access to adequate zinc uh and iron is critical to keep kids going to school regularly otherwise they're um uh, exposed increasingly to um uh, episodes of disease so you know nutritious food becomes important at so many levels it kind of defines very often whether you'll succeed in school or not whether you'll grow uh and and be productive uh in general or not so and it it gets defined very very early um in the in the life uh of a family so if um, i extend so, that to a societal or even national level that's a tremendous productivity loss because you're losing huge. out really on the early growth of even children that have lack of access to these important minerals 
Yeah, absolutely. And and sadly, many countries face this problem in the developing world, mostly because if you really think about it, a lot of the lower income households depend on on cereals, on staple staple foods, um, right? Rice, maize. Um, you know, or uh, beans, uh, cassava, those kinds of like basic staple foods. And where you get your your vitamins and minerals from might be, and your proteins from might be, you know, vegetables and fruits and meat. Um, so, you know, one of the things that um, many uh, people who work on agriculture innovation are trying to do increasingly see if you can take these affordable staple crops and enhance their nutrition so that you know for example if they're crops that have a little bit of iron can you in, can you conventionally crossbreed them to increase the iron content mm. because if you think about it countries like India, maybe 50% of the population of women in India uh, are, are anemic. That's huge. Wow, that's that's a huge number. That's a huge number. That's someone in your family, essentially. And, I will have to know, check with my mother now. Now you have made me a bit uh, right? nervous. Yeah. And so so really the, the question becomes, you know, how can you start, instead of trying to do this, um, uh, you know, in a very expensive way, or, uh, you know, is there a way to build it into the daily diets of people so that just as a natural, in the natural course of, uh, you know, what they are able to afford on a daily basis, they are getting these nutrients. So, you know, again, um, given the discussion we had earlier, um, mm -hmm. working on nutritionally enhanced crops is not just a question of innovating to uh, create nutritionally enhanced crops, right? So there, is, there are very useful right. technologies like biofortification. Uh, for example, the organization that I work with right now uh, has, has innovated in biofortification, but the real um, rubber hits the road when you have to scale the seeds, the biofortified seeds to millions and millions of, of households. That's where all these issues again come into the picture. You need to work with farmers so they can afford these seeds. Uh, and also you know, probably across required, different right? geographies, right? Because you spoke about staple food and staple food can differ from geography to geography, meaning you guys have tremendous challenges in actually solving this problem with different staple food in different geographies in different cultures altogether. Oh, absolutely. Um, so there are like something like 400 biofortified varieties globally for different crops. And well, the, okay. the challenge is now getting them into um, more and more uh, people's plates on a daily basis. So, so yeah, right. so I think, uh, I think, you know, you asked about hidden hunger um, uh, and uh, this, this is the issue. India is not exempt from this issue. Um, you know, uh, zinc plays an important role in immunity as immunity to disease, particularly lung disease as well. So there's a lot to be done to ensure 
uh, households have access to um, uh, the right kind of uh, nutrition. Speaking of zinc, I can now relate to why I was actually recommended a zinc acetate tablets uh, because I, I recently contracted the COVID virus and then I was prescribed wow. zinc acetate tablets. Now I understand why. Reva, you mentioned briefly about biofortification. What is it exactly? Is it a bit different or similar to genetic modification or is it completely different? It's uh, different from genetically modified uh, crops mm-hmm. in the sense that in the uh, in the sense that it uses conventional breeding methods to nutritionally enhance crops. So uh, these biofortified crops are developed in agriculture uh, science centers um, globally, and mm-hmm. then uh, this science is made available because it's a public good. It's made available to everyone, um, whoever wants to take uh, uh, the science and kind of incorporate it in their seed production, they're welcome to do so. Um, so uh, yeah, so that, that's what biofortification is. It's this process of nutritionally enhancing existing staple crops. And that um, could be a long cycle, I can imagine. Yes, it's taken a while. So, you know, to get from uh, the first type of uh, crops that were successfully biofortified to now has taken around uh, a decade. Oh, wow. But, then, but uh, what's exciting is now to see governments start to recognize uh, the value of biofortification. So we had, for example, Prime Minister Narendra Modi endorse biofortification on World Food Day. Uh, mm-hmm. last year um, and um, there are a number of biofortified uh, a number of governments uh, that are now increasingly uh, looking into how they can make biofortification a, a cohesive part of you know either like for example PDS or some other uh, ongoing government programs that deliver either seeds or food to low-income households. That's very, very interesting. So the role of these new agricultural technologies will pick up pace, and I think that they have already picked up pace. So in the next, I think in the next couple of decades or even more than that, uh, bio for, we would be actually having quite significant amount of biofortified crops growing all around the globe. Hopefully. I hope so. <laughs> so, because I think it, uh, it's, it's the need of the hour, the, I can imagine. Yeah, it is the need of the hour. Um, uh, you know, when we look at that two billion number, it's uh, it's it's kind of astounding Huge. to see. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, and forever, uh, it also brings me uh, to this to my next question, and I'm very curious to learn about it because even I don't have any knowledge around it. You have a background in policy research and making. You have been working extensively with these case research, some of which you already described so far. How do we actually design these policies? Like, consider me as a layman. I have no idea about how policies are defined at organizations such as yours. What approach do organizations typically take when researching and designing their policies to create maximum impact? Especially, for example, we're talking about 2 billion people having 
or having or let's say not having access to vitamin A, zinc, um, and other important minerals. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so one thing I should mention is that we don't we don't design policies. Um, um, you know, it's it's really governments who who take mm-hmm. the lead on that. Um, okay. And what what we can do is um, either through our ongoing uh, analysis or research, we can highlight certain issues. Mm-hmm. and get to sort of um, an in-depth analysis on those issues. So for example, hidden hunger, you know, many parts of the world governments absolutely recognize that it exists uh, and this is an issue. So someone like us would come in when they think, okay, but h- what exactly, um, uh, why is it persisting despite something we've tried in the past or what can we do to improve our policy solutions exactly. in this area so that's when when we would come in i wish there was a set formula for effective policy design <laughs> i think i think the way it works very often is you know as governments recognize a problem or recognize that an existing solution is not working as well as they wanted to um you know, you you kind of set up a process of engagement or further research, understanding, uh, you know, both from the perspective of end clients, which are like, for example, smallholder farmers, or understanding from system actors, you know, delivery agencies, that local block of or someone who is responsible mm-hmm. for delivering policy. Um, and and de- then try and figure out, you know, what went wrong, um, or what, what additional solutions are needed. And then helping uh, governments kind of prioritize, um, you know, wh- where they need to allocate resources. So that's another aspect um, of, of this work. Um, right. Sometimes, you know, it's also just very um, uh, qualitative engagement, trying to understand what's going on um, uh, in a landscape of interrelated policies and, you know, where something might be needed from a coordination perspective. Um, what happens in big countries is that you, you have lots of solutions. It's just a matter of getting them all to sing in the same, um, of the same song sheet. So, um, right. yeah, I would say all of this um, is part, part of, of working in in policy including you know qualitative research quantitative research thinking about um evaluation of existent policy or modeling what the effects of a new policy could be um or it could just be engaging in a systematic way with a set of stakeholders all of that goes into uh working on on policy okay that is some enlightening for me. Reva, books and people that have had the most influence of you. I'm really curious to know this. Well, okay. So, <laughs> so in terms of books, there's so many. I, I wouldn't know <laughs> where to start. But I have to say that I've increasingly nowadays been thinking about Amartya Sen's book on development as freedom, um, where he makes 
um, uh, a point about democracy and development. Uh, and I also really like his, his book on resources, values. Um, uh, so, you know, I think uh, he's, and, and, and in general, he's also someone who's been very uh, inspiring. Um, yes. Another book that I find, I found really compelling in my career in rural finance was uh, Portfolios of the Poor by uh, Darren Stuart Collins. Stuart Rutherford, right? Stuart Rutherford and others. Yes, that's a so really that, not interesting book. I, I yeah. had the opportunity to read it just last month. It's, I found it right. really, really interesting. Yeah, it's a, it's a really, it's worth uh, reading. And then the Definitely. other one that I like a lot is um, a book uh, called Scarcity um, by Sendil uh, Mulainadhan. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean, I can go on and on. There is... Uh, <laughs> On, on Hidden Hunger, an interesting book is Roger Thuro, um, The First Thousand Days, um, where he talks about how much of a person's life can be, you know, dependent on getting the right nutrition in the first, uh, in the first thousand, day, thousand days. And then um, just because I've often worked on agriculture uh, in the rural context, um, you know, one can't not talk about Norman Borlo. Yes, I can so imagine books, that. Yeah, so, and, and very inspirational again, as an innovator, uh, as, you know, a persistent innovator, um, that that for me is always uh, inspirational. And, you know, a couple of books are The Man Who Fed the World and The Wizard and the Prophet, which kind of tries to put Norman Borlo's work in perspective a little bit. So. Yeah, I mean, I think there's so much um, <laughs> probably missed, uh, you know, there's some good management books as well, like Fortune at the Bottom of the Pyramid, um, that kind of stuff. So, yeah, yeah. Lovely. Thanks for sharing these. And people, I, I guess the authors definitely had an influence yeah. on you because <laughs> there is no question about it. Any other people or person that had the most influence on you, especially your career and the way that that your journey has been mapped out so far? Again, so many. Um, <laughs> I, think, like, I think the ones that it's easy to name are the ones everyone knows already. Uh, I already mentioned a couple of them. Um, and then there's uh, uh, Ila Ben Bhatt from Seva Bank. Mm-hmm. who's always been extremely uh, inspiration, inspirational, uh, as also Jeshri Vyas from the same organization, um, and uh, uh, Mohammed Yunus from Grameen Bank, uh, extremely uh, inspirational in the work that he kickstarted all over the world. Um, yeah, so many uh, different achievers uh, you know, who have kind of uh, been been super interesting in the work that they do. Thank you so much, Rayla, for sharing your knowledge, your thoughts, and everything that you have shared. It was very inspiring to hear 
and listened um, actively what you have been doing and what the world has been facing. The, some of the biggest challenges, of course, hidden hunger. Some, two billion, when, when I hear two billion, that's already sounds like a gigantic number. And that's definitely one of the most pressing challenges uh, that we are facing right now. Thank you, Reva, for being on the show. Really glad to have you on the show. And I look forward to staying in touch with you. Thanks for it. Take care. Bye-bye. That was Reva Mishra. Imagine every one in two women in India is potentially anemic. Two billion people on this planet are facing hidden hunger. Smallholding farmers face tremendous challenges in having a regular and predictable source of income while fighting against the impacts of climate change every day. All of this impacts every one of us. Everyone. Thanks for listening in and let me know your thoughts on the learnings from this episode. You can subscribe to the podcast to stay updated about the upcoming episodes. You can also follow the Instagram channel, The Impact Ambassador, to stay updated. If you want me to cover the story of an impact ambassador you know of, you can write to me at theimpactambassador at gmail.com. See you then in the next episode on The Impact Ambassador Podcast.